Well, if you're staying in here with us, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to dive right into our message this morning. Um, If you're not uh, used to being in church or not used to being with us this morning, we are so glad that you are here today. We hope that as you are with us that you felt encouraged and what you've already seen and heard through our worship service today. And as we dive into God's Word this morning, I want you to understand that, that the passage we're looking at today is talking to those of us who follow Jesus. So if you're watching us online or if you're in here this morning and you're not yet in the place where you would say, I'm a, a Christ follower, I'm a Christian, I, I'm following Jesus, we're so glad that you're with us. Just know that some of the things we say may not make a lot of sense to you, and that's okay. We want you to hear about this. We want you to hear about how awesome our God is, and we'll try to explain as best we can as we go through. First Peter is a, a letter that's written to a bunch of Christians who were scattered around uh, the area that we now know as Turkey or Asia Minor. And as they were going through life, they were being pushed to the outside of society because they were doing what God told them to do, which pushed back against what the world around them was telling them to do. So they were living in a way that they were living as exiles in the world. They were on the outside of things, even though they might have been like, I am here, I'm a Christiansburg native in my own hometown. I'm an exile because my primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. That means that I'm an exile here, even in America, even in Christiansburg, even my own hometown. I have a different set of allegiances. I have a different set of priorities. I have a a different set of things that God's called me to be and to do as a part of, of being here as a representative of his kingdom. Okay? Now, what we're getting ready to get into is a lengthy section that Peter's going to go through where he's going to tell us what our life as exiles should look like in relationship to various different forms of authority. We'll see that he's going to talk to us about how do we relate to the government that's over us, and that's going to be some challenging stuff. He's going to address those who were enslaved people in in that day about how they were supposed to respond to their masters. He's going to talk to us about how we're supposed to respond to each other as husbands and wives. And as he goes through all of these things, he's going to be telling us to live out what we're going to see in the two verses we're looking at this morning. So in case you don't catch any of the messages from here on out, if you could live out the principles in these two verses, then you'll be doing very well in representing Christ as an exile here on earth. Okay. Now, as I said, these two are going to give us kind of an overview and a a theme that will carry us through. It's going to be a few weeks before we pick back up in 1 Peter, uh, but these are going to be the things that teach us what we're looking at as we're looking at the rest of it. Okay. Sound good? Well, without going much further, let's just go ahead and dive in. We've been seeing all of these beautiful truths about how God has given us this living hope, how he has set us apart. Last week, we saw that God has called us as this unique group of people who've been set apart to be able to proclaim his praises to the world around us, to talk about him and tell others about Jesus around us. So now, building on all of that, he's going to tell us what does that look like. And what we're going to see this morning is just two simple points out of this, that we are to avoid distorted desires, and we're going to seek to live in such a way that, that we can glorify God, okay? We're going to unpack that and make that make sense here in a minute. And dive with, in with me here. Okay, let's get that out of the way. Second Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 11, okay? Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God 
on the day he visits. Now, we're just going to look at those two verses, which does not necessarily mean we're going to get out early, um, but it does mean that we're just going to look at those two. Now, as I said, these two verses are going to be the guidelines for us as we look at the next things, because he's going to go on, like I said, to talk about the next verses, talking about how we relate to the government. Then how do we relate to our masters if we were slaves? How do we relate to our husbands? How do we relate to our wives? How do we relate to each other? And as we go through that, that's going to be how we live out this honorable life among the Gentiles, okay? Make sense? Cool. Well, let's dive in first, and let's look at this distorted desires issue. First, we're going to see that God tells us through Peter that distorted desires destroy us. Distorted desires destroy us, okay? Peter starts out, by the way, in verse 11 with one last reminder of who we are in Christ before he goes on. Um, The translators of the CSB chose to use this or translate this as dear friends, The word here simply means beloved. So it could be that Peter is talking about uh, he has this love for the Christians to whom he's writing. But most likely, given the context of all that he's been telling us about what God has done for us, he's saying, those of you, as, as I get ready to tell you this, remember, you are beloved by God. And so he's getting ready to ask us to do some really difficult things. But underneath all of that is the reminder that you have been and are loved by the God of the universe. If you're here today and you've surrendered to Christ and you've been drawn to him and you're following him as your Savior and your Lord, that means that you are loved by God and you're resting in the love that he has shown you as he demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you're beloved of God. Not only that, He goes on to say that we are talking about the fact that we are strangers and exiles. Other verses, uh, other translations translate this, strangers and sojourners. I kind of like the words uh, just because it rhymed or it's kind of alliterated. But the idea is we are not going to be like we're from around here, okay? How many of you uh, know somebody who's not from around here? All right? What are some of the, the phrases? I tell you what, have you ever run into anybody who is, born and raised in central Virginia that's a little bit older, and you thought they were Canadian when you first met them, okay? Have you guys, have you ever run into this? There's this, like, corridor through central Virginia that, where they say, out and about in a house, you know, like, it's, um, I had a friend of mine, who her mother, her mother grew up around Lynchburg and stuff like that, and, and kind of grew up through that central Virginia region, and she'd be like, oh, are you all going out tonight? And it's like, no, we're going out, Right? <laughs> Or like a friend of mine in seminary who was from Iowa who said that the thing on top of the building is the rough. And I was like, no, that's what the dog says, right? Like, it's obvious when you're not from around here. You know, you can also tell it with things like nares, right? If you, if you ever talk to somebody and they say, oh, I'm going to narrows this weekend, you know they're not from around here because it's nares, right? Same with Buchanan, it's Buchanan, Staunton, it's Stanton, right? You can tell when somebody's not from around here because of the way they say things. In a similar kind of way, guys, we are strangers and exiles here. We're, we're just passing through. This world system is not where we live. It's not where we're from. And some of you are sitting there probably correcting me on how I said narrows because I still can't say it right. The reality, <laughs> that should happen to us. When we're talking to people who don't know Jesus, we're going to be strangers. We're going to say stuff differently. We're going to have different customs, different habits, different ways of looking at life. 
Give you one more example. Tom Rayner, who's a, an author, and uh, as, he's actually one of the guys who developed the church assessment that we just completed as a church. Um, Dr. Rayner was a pastor in a new town, and one of the things that, that you need to do as a pastor is you need to go talk to folks about what are the funeral uh, kind of ceremonies and things, because every place does funerals a little bit differently. What he didn't know was that the funeral director in this particular town was also the biggest practical joker in town. So he went to the funeral director and said, do I need to know about any strange customs? Uh, A lady in his church had just passed. He'd only been there for two months or so. Didn't really know her. Didn't really know the family. She had passed away. And so the funeral director looked at him dead in the eyes and said, yes, it's customary that at a funeral here in town that after the funeral is over that the officiant kissed the deceased. Dr. Rainer was a young pastor, and so he... uh, Okay, if that's what you said. So he finished the funeral sermon. He walked down to where the the casket lay, and he bent in. He said, I didn't actually kiss her, but it looked like I did. And he said, when I turned around, there were two reactions around the crowd. Utter shock and horror from everybody there, except for the funeral director and his guys who were dying laughing. Okay? People do things differently different places. So we are strangers. We are sojourners. We're going to do things differently. It's not always going to go the same way. So as we're looking at this, as Peter's diving in and talking about it, remember that that's going to be the case. So if we're strangers and sojourners, what's that mean we're going to do? Well, he says here that the first thing is we're going to abstain from sinful desires. Now, if you've grown up around church, you immediately think of sexual immorality here. And that's definitely in view. God has absolutely created us as individuals who are supposed to express this beautiful truth that God's given us through sexual union between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. That's how that desire is supposed to be expressed. Anything outside of that is sin, okay? So here's what we're finding is this is beyond just sexual sin. It's any kind of desire where we take a good thing that God's told us that we can want And we want it either in the wrong way or we seek to fulfill that desire in the wrong way. So we want it too much. We want it too little. We seek to fulfill it in a way that's not God-honoring. Like I said, with sexual desire, we, we take that outside the bounds of a covenant marriage of one man and one woman for one lifetime. And we express it in any other way, whether that's through pornography, adultery, homosexuality, anything else outside of that picture of one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's a distorted sinful desire. But it's more than just sex. It's easy for us to pick on that one because it's one of the most common we, we run into in Scripture. But let me give you some other examples. God's given us a desire for relationships and friendships. We should be friends with people. We should have networks and connections. But it becomes sinful when we try to do anything to be accepted, even if it violates one of God's commands. If we're willing to, to go there, do that, compromise this, or, or just try really hard, and the thing we care about most is that people like us, then we're missing the mark, and that that God-given desire for community and relationship has become a sinful desire because we're expressing it in the wrong way. Same kind of way, God's created us to work. That's when God put Adam and Eve in the garden. God told Adam that he was to tend the garden. That was before sin ever came into the world. So work is a good and God-honoring thing. However, when work becomes our identity, when we're overworking and we're making who I am equivalent to what I do, We've taken that, that God-given desire to work, and we've created a sinful desire out of that because we're looking for fulfillment in a way that God's called us not to. 
We can also look at that for the fact that we've been need and we've been created with the rest or with rest as a part of who we are. I just wrote a 16 and a half page paper on the Sabbath in case anybody ever wants to read it. You don't, I promise you. Um, but God has created us with a need for rest and God's created us w- with a desire to rest. But when that rest becomes laziness, where we're avoiding what God's called us to do and we're not doing the responsibilities he's called us to and we care more about our comfort than we care about making sure we're engaging and doing what God's called us to do, that becomes a sinful desire. So desire itself is not the problem. There have been people throughout history, you think about like the Stoics and others who have said, if I just could rid myself of all desire, I would be okay. Uh, Not really. The problem is distorted desires that take us in places they shouldn't. Does this make sense? It's where, as as Tim Keller has said, we take good things and we make them into God things. We elevate them to the status of the God of our life, and then they become a bad thing. We see it with people do this with their children. They put their children above anything else and make their happiness the most important they can come with. Uh, You know, we we do it with everything. We do it by overeating. We do it by undereating. We do it by working out too much, laying around too much. It's everywhere. We take God-given desires and we distort them. And here's the thing. You say, well, Sean, it's everywhere. I mean, we're all, we all have times where we get out of, out of sorts. You know, we want stuff we shouldn't. Well, the world af- around us is chasing after these kinds of desires. That's why Paul, I, I love the graphic way in which he put this, Philippians 3, 18 and 19. He says this, I've often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame, and they're focused on earthly things. Leave that up for a second there, Grant. Their end is destruction. That's where it's headed. Their God is their stomach. Boy, couldn't that be said of America today? By the way, remember that anytime I point a finger somewhere, I'm pointing three back at me, right? We all have issues where consumption is a thing. You know, it used to be you died of the consumption. Now we're just obsessed with it. <laughs> I know it's a different thing. Their glory is in their shame. This is what we see. Things that we ought to be ashamed of, we celebrate and promote. And it's on both sides of the aisles, guys. They're focused on earthly things. The focus is on this life. What I can get now, what makes me happy, what makes me comfortable, what I think I ought to do. Their end is destruction. That's what the world is chasing after. So with this graphic picture that Paul's painted, Paul's saying that this isn't just a bad idea. It's not just that living by your desires and living by the fleshly desires that you have, that's not just a bad idea. What does Peter tell us here? He says that these things wage war against the soul. How many of you guys have been following everything going on in Ukraine? How how many of you guys watch the news and and you read the stories and you read the horrors of the Russians coming in and killing off all of these people in Ukraine? You hear about people starving. You hear about people being, their lives being taken, their, their cities being destroyed. War is horrible. There's times when it's necessary, but it's terrible. It's destructive. The goal of Russia right now is to wipe Ukraine as a nation off of the map. They do not want the state of Ukraine to continue as it is. Why do I bring that up? Peter says these distorted desires wage war 
against your soul. Your distorted desires that, well, I just wanted to sleep in a little extra. Well, I just wanted to eat a little bit more. Well, I just wanted to, I just wanted to, I just want everybody at work to know how good I am. I just want to make sure that I get into this. All of that is waging war against your soul. So when you think about those lusts, those desires, those sinful tendencies, it's not just bad ideas. They are the Vladimir Putins trying to overtake what God's doing in your soul. Distorted desires destroy us. Jeremiah, you know, we hear all the time about the disnification of life and how you just follow your heart, right? This idea of I've got my truth, and that may be truth for you, and I just I'm just going to follow my heart, and you know if I love what I do, I'll never work a day in my life, and I just I just want to follow my heart, what my heart wants, you know, just go for it. You remember what the Bible says about our hearts? Jeremiah seventeen nine, he said, "The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and it's incurable. Who can understand it? Follow your heart is some of the worst." advice you can be given because it's lying to you. I mean, think about it. Those of you who are out of high school, let's be honest. Did you ever like someone in high school? Okay. All right. Raise your hand. If you liked somebody romantically, you had a boyfriend or girlfriend, or you liked somebody, raise your hand. Okay. Now, keep your hand up if you married somebody else. Okay? All right. Now, if I went to you as a 10th grader and said, what does your heart want? It wants to marry this person because I know that they are God's. Now, some of you married your high school sweetheart. Y'all are the lucky ones. I get it. All right, go back to elementary school. I don't know, whatever. But at some point, your heart wanted to marry this person and you knew you were destined to be together forever and you ended up with somebody else, right? You married somebody different. Your heart was wrong. If your heart can be as a 10th grader about who you like, the reality is your heart can be wrong about a whole lot of things, about what you really want, about where you want to be. It's more deceitful than else. That's why Proverbs says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a person, but end it leads to death, right? There's a way that seems right. This seems like a good idea. And if I follow my heart, it's just going to lead to death. I mean, think about the terms that have been used here. Paul said in, in that, or excuse me, in, um, well, what we're looking at, in, I blank, in Philippians, sorry. We've got Galatians coming up later. All right. In Philippians, Paul said that their end is destruction. In Peter, he said they're waging war against the soul. Here we see in Proverbs that this leads to death. Distorted desires destroy us. So we need to fight back against that. Peter says, abstain from it. Abstain does not mean just give in every once in a while. Abstain means don't. And again, like I said, there's hot button topics in our world today that's easy for us to say, well, this is obviously wrong, and it is. It is. But I'm telling you guys, when you really start looking at it, Our hearts, as again, as Tim Keller said, are idol-making factories. We have distorted desires that we're trying to live by all the time that lead to death, to destruction, 
and a life that's at war with what God's trying to do. So the first part of this is we're supposed to be living out a life of honoring God as exiles is that we need to take care of our own hearts and make sure that we are walking in the way that God's called us to. That's why Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17, this is where I was getting to. Doug referenced this last week. He said, I say then, walk by the Spirit and you not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit and the Spirit desires what's against the flesh and they're opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Okay, walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh, but the flesh desires what is against the Spirit. It's in opposition. So the Spirit of God and what He's doing is the opposite of what your flesh wants you to do. They're opposed to each other so that we don't end up doing what we want. Okay? Now, wait a second. Sean, doesn't the Bible say that God will give me the desires of my heart? I feel like I read that somewhere. Yes, you're right. Psalm chapter 37, verses 4 and 5. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. What comes first? Well, look at it again. Go back a verse. Take delight in the Lord. As I delight in God, instead of delighting in my distorted desires, when I make my relationship with Christ first and foremost and foundational in everything that I do, then what happens is I learn to delight in the Lord. I learn to rest in the goodness of God. And as I do, what happens is he actually starts putting his desires into my heart. So I want the things that he wants. And I don't want my fleshly desires anymore. I start to desire the things that he wants. And so he's giving me my heart's desires because he's put those desires in there in the first place. So instead of the distorted desires, I need to be delighting in the Lord so that I can then honor him with the desires that he puts in my life. We have to focus on who God is and what he's done to rescue us. See, God knew that our hearts were wicked and that we couldn't remedy them on our own. So that's why he sent Jesus to come in the flesh, but die without having ever sinned to die for my sin and to die for your sin and to be raised from the dead. So that as he was raised, I'm walking with him as he's drawn me into a relationship with himself. Now he's taken all of those desires and nailed them to the cross. I don't have to live like that anymore. By the way, we don't believe in what's called sinless perfection around here. That doesn't mean that even though Jesus has taken those desires and nailed them to the cross, I'm never going to be perfect until Jesus comes back. Theoretically, I never have to sin. I I could theoretically, in theory, never sin again. But there's still this war that goes on. There's still these old habits that I still fight against. And so we're going to continue in sin until Jesus comes back. Now, we don't give up the fight. In fact, what we try to do is we abstain from those desires that lead us to those kind of actions. We we wage war against that instead of letting it wage war against us. I'm called to following the Spirit of God as He directs, not my own desires. Can I talk to our men for just a minute? Gentlemen, the world needs you to step up. The temptation that we have as men is to become passive. It's very easy for me to withdraw and let somebody else do everything else. But our call as men is to reject passivity, to be faithful, to honor God through life, making the hard choices to follow God, whatever it is that he's called you to do. John Maxwell says the right thing is always uphill. And it is. 
It doesn't get easy, but it's the privilege that we have as men. Now, ladies, God's also calling you to step it up. Right now, the culture is extremely loud about what a woman is supposed to be and to do. What I would challenge you is make sure that whatever you hear in the culture, that you look to God's word to see if that's how he would have you to respond. Because the biblical picture of manhood and womanhood is much, much more beautiful than anything the world has out here. But it's hard. Because everyone, I mean, right now especially, everyone is screaming that the decisions that were made on Friday are anti-woman. And that's not the case. It's not the case. I know that there are a lot of folks out there who are scared, a lot of folks out there who are concerned, but the reality is this was made to be able to preserve life, including the life of unborn women. And it's ultimately for the good of the mothers as well. It's a hard thing. It's different. It's difficult. But God's plan and God's design is so much more beautiful than what the world's offering. Okay? Instead, we've got to fight back against that, whether it's being passive, whether it's being too aggressive, because we can do that too. Although I'd say the vast majority of us, for us men, passivity is more of an issue than aggression. And when it comes to stuff that matters, we may be angry people, but we're usually more passive than we are engaging. Ladies, look at what God says about the character that he's called you to, to honor him that way because these distorted desires destroy us. Now, there's a second part to this. Not only do the distorted desires destroy us, as we're looking then, that's a lot about how we as individuals behave and how we as individuals respond, okay? That ties directly in then to the second part about this, which is good behavior glorifies God. Look at verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. As you allow God to correct your distorted desires, you're going to live differently than those around you. You're going to, we've got to acknowledge that living as strangers and exiles is hard. Peter refers to them as Gentiles in this because um, if you remember in the Old Testament, you had the Jews and there was everybody else was a Gentile. So Peter is saying that that all of the world around us, those who are not Christians, he's using that term Gentile to, to describe all of those around us who are not following Jesus. And what he's telling us is that the way that we live in front of the Gentiles will, will honor Christ. Peter will point out later in this letter that they'll speak poorly of you because you don't do the same things that they do. Now, that's what we're seeing right now. Again, with hot-button issues that we see in, in the, the culture around us, such as the, the stand on biblical gender and marriage, the stand on, on life, all of those kind of things. We're seeing the world say, you hate women. You hate people who love each other. Why, why are you so bigoted about this? That's going to happen, and that's, that's understandable because apart from a relationship with Christ, a lot of the stances we take may not make sense. But when I look at what God has said in his word, this is where we are. So if you're maligned for standing with Christ, then so be it. But notice what he says here. He calls us to live honorably among the Gentiles, right? Isn't that what it says? Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Here's what one of the things that that means. We talked about this a little bit last week. 
That means that you and I as Christians need to be among the Gentiles. You see, it's very easy for us to have our friends at church. I mean, listen, guys, I'm a a pastor. All of my friends are church people for the most part. All day long, I get calls from church people. I talk to church people. I go visit church people. I have lunch with church people. If I go to somebody's house, it's probably the church person. If I have somebody to my house, it's probably somebody from church. How am I going to conduct my life honorably among the Gentiles if I'm never among the Gentiles? One of the things I loved was before God opened the door for me to be full-time here, I used to substitute teach up at Christiansburg High School. Man, that was a trip. That was my alma mater. I went to CHS. And having the privilege of being able to share the gospel with some of the teachers that I had been there under, and by the way, as a public school teacher, you're allowed to answer any question you're asked. I was 27, and so people know you're not like that retired teacher who's a sub or just retired and trying to make some money. So the kids would say, what do you do for a living? And I'd say, well, I'm a pastor by trade. And you'd be amazed at the questions that these students would ask and the freedom that I had to be able to talk about Jesus in the public school. Now, if anybody's watching, that may keep me from ever getting back in there. But hey, in those moments, I had to watch how I responded. You know, I couldn't go back in the, the teacher workroom and cuss out a student like other teachers were. It happens, just in case. In case you wondered, by the way, do teachers talk about their students when they get to the break room? Yes. The answer is 1,000% yes. If you were that bad kid, they talk about you, I promise. Could I join in? No, because I've been called to live honorably among them. And they may get mad at me, for the way that I stand on this issue or the way I respond to this particular thing. But Peter says that the way we live among the Gentiles calls us to live honorably among them. So that when they slander us as evildoers and say we're bigots, we're on the wrong side of history, we're doing this. At the same time, they sit there and look around and say, but you know what? I know more people who are Christians who have adopted or fostered than anybody else. None of my friends who don't go to church foster or adopt. And I know folks who've had dozens of kids that have come through their homes over the years. I know people who have given up thousands of their dollars to be able to fund food banks, to be able to make sure that people are cared for. And I may hate the fact that they don't agree with me loving this person that they think that I shouldn't have a right to have an abortion. But man, I can't argue with the fact that they're doing this. I can't argue with the fact that when my mom died, they were here to be able to bring me food. That's what we want the nation to say. That's what we want those around us to say. We want them to look at what God's called us to be and to do and to say, I hate what they stand for, but man, they're good people. I heard a story, I wish I had the the reference for you, about a, a man who would was being arrested as a Christian back in the early days of the church in the Roman days, shortly after this would have been written, who was, knew he was being arrested and to be burned at the stake. When the men came to arrest them, it was too late for them to take him that night. So the gentleman invited them into his home. The men who were arresting him and executing him the next day, he invited them into his home, fixed them the best meal he could, and sat with them all the way knowing that they were going to kill him the very next day. Because this man loved Jesus. And he was keeping his conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So the next morning when they got up, he said, it's time to go. 
He offered himself up, and they burned him at the stake. Can you imagine that those soldiers, for just a minute, though, man, I know we've got orders. This guy fed us dinner last night. This, This guy welcomed us into his home. How can we? Orders are orders. And they arrest him and put him to death. See, we want the world to glorify God on the day of his visitation because of what they've seen in us. They can't see it if we're just in here. Okay? We've got to find ways. You know, one of the things that you'll notice about the way that we program things as a church, we don't have activities going on every night of the week. In some respects, part of that is intentional. Because we want you to be able to be at your kids' baseball games and share the gospel with the other parents who are there. We want you to volunteer with the Humane Society, to be a part of the Ruritans or the Lions Club, to get some guys together from work and go bowling with them so that you can be among the Gentiles, so that you can be among the lost world, so that they can hear who Jesus is. Not so we can sit here and have notches on our belt about how many people we've led to Christ or how big the church has gotten. No, so that as we live honorably among the world, they will see who God is, and through our good behavior, they will glorify God on the day of his visitation. Now there's a question about, is the day of his visitation talking about his return, or is it actually talking about the day that somebody gets saved? Um, it could go either way. Usually when it talks about glorifying God, it's talking about the, uh, the, when somebody's saved, unsaved people don't glorify God. But if it's talking about the final judgment, it could go either way. Any way you cut it, any way that this verse is supposed to be, whether it's when God draws someone to, to salvation and then sit there and say, you know what? My friend loved me. They prayed for me. They shared just with me. And I'm ready to follow him now because of what I've seen in them. Maybe that it's through that. Maybe it's when Jesus returns and, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They'll sit there and say, you know, I ignored what he said. I ignored how he lived. I know he told me that this wasn't right, this wasn't best, that I needed to follow Jesus. But regardless, they're going to stand before God and glorify him on the day of his visitation. You see, this is what God's called us to do. By the way, that doesn't mean angry Facebook posts. By the way, here's what I love, okay? Just so you guys know, I have literally unfollowed everyone on Facebook, okay? If you were to look at my Facebook feed, right now you would see posts from the International Mission Board and you would see the posts from our church. I would not have a Facebook page if it wasn't for the church. I need to be able to post stuff and and things like that. I'm done with Facebook. So when I say that, I'm not saying that because I saw what so-and-so posted this week. I didn't, okay? If so-and-so posted something, I don't know about it, genuinely. But I know that if all we're doing is sitting there posting stuff on Facebook and yelling at people, it's not going to honor God. See, in 2003, before Facebook was hardly a thing, one of the commentators that I, su- I look at often wrote this, Peter did not summon believers to a verbal campaign of self-defense or to the writing of tracts in which they defend their morality. He enjoined believers to pursue virtue and goodness so that their goodness would be apparent to all in society. Like I said, for us, that's Facebook posts, blog posts, and podcasts. Now, 
Is there anything wrong with talking about Jesus on your Facebook page? Not at all. I encourage it. Do it. Is there anything wrong about coming up with a position paper on where we stand on this particular issue? Not at all. But here's the problem. If that's all we do, no one will listen and no one will care. If, however, we're out there and we're living among people, we're loving people, we're pointing them to Christ by, dis- by denying the distorted behaviors, the desires that destroy us, and instead glorifying Christ by living well for him and taking every opportunity to verbally share the gospel. That'll come up later in chapter 3. But taking every opportunity to sit there and say, why are you such a nice guy? Well, I'm such a nice guy because of what Jesus has done. I want to pray for God to bless you because of what Jesus has done. And our good behavior then backs up and influences our ability to use the words to defend the gospel. Does that make sense? Distorted desires destroy us. Good behavior glorifies God. Now, again, uh, it'll be a few weeks before we get back to it. But what I encourage you to do is, with this idea in mind, with this, this rubric of distorted desires destroy us, good behavior glorifies God, read through the next little bit, uh, like through the rest of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3, and see if you don't see where Peter's playing this out. Look at, and notice that, that distorted desires would destroy us, but, but this is what honorable conduct among the Gentiles looks like. And by the way, there's going to be some really challenging stuff in there for all of us. It includes submitting to governing authorities who are evil and wicked. It means submitting to people who are mistreating us. It means a self-effacing way of going about marriage that is difficult and almost unpalatable in our world. But as we do this, we honor Christ before a watching world. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes this morning. Here's the question for for you right now. First off, are there any areas in, in your life where distorted desires are destroying you? Where you're allowing what you think your heart wants, what the world's told you you need to keep you from doing what God's called you to do? The desire itself may not be a bad thing, and that's what makes it so dangerous. It may be a good thing that you've made into a God thing that makes it a bad thing. So this morning, is there an area in which you need to say, God, I've let this desire get out of control. I've wanted success too much. I've wanted sex in the wrong way. I've I've wanted people to like me. I've wanted to be the best at this. I've wanted to be known as this or that. God, I just want to lay that desire at your feet and ask for you to give me the wisdom to get it back in order. To want the right thing in the right way for the right reason. And then the next question is, as we work on those issues of distorted desires, Would you ask for God to give you wisdom on what it looks like to live this out and live honorably among the Gentiles so that they'll glorify God? Would you ask him to give you the boldness to be able to talk to your coworkers about Jesus or to share Parr's story? 
Would you ask him to give you the, the wisdom to know, is there something I'm supposed to get involved with, somewhere I'm supposed to, to think about volunteering or spending my time so that I can, I can help people know who Jesus is in this place or this way? What do you need to do to make sure that through good behavior, you're glorifying God? Give you just a moment to do business with God. If you've got questions about starting a relationship with Jesus or or anything I can pray for you about, I'll be down front here and you can come down and talk with me. But if not, again, I'll just let you do business with God there where you're seated. And then in a minute, I'll close this with prayer. Father, we want to want you more than anything else. We want to desire you more than comfort, more than pleasure, more than status, more than anything. So, Father, would you keep us safely, securely desiring you above everything else? If anybody in here has made a commitment this morning to to abstain from some, some desire that's been disordered, some sinful desire of their flesh, would you, would you give them the ability to carry that out? Keep it in their mind and help them to figure out what to replace that desire with, how to honor you with, with what you've called them to be and to do. Father, would you allow our conduct among the Gentiles to be excellent? that we would live in such a way that, that people who may hate what we believe can't argue with what we've done to show your love to the world so that whether it's through when you draw them to salvation or when you return, they would be able to glorify you because of what they've seen in us. We can't do that on our own. Would you send us out strategically into our jobs, to our schools, to our dorms, to our apartment complexes, to our neighborhoods, to our doctor's offices, to, to wherever you call us to go. If you want us to volunteer somewhere, to, to get involved in something, to do something, to, to be able to help people to see who you are. God, give us wisdom. Help us to represent you well. Just like Jesus represented you by coming and doing tangible good and declaring your righteousness and declaring your kingdom and then dying in our place and being raised so that we could live a new life. Help us honor Jesus for the sacrifice he's made. As we proclaim your praises, as we live honorably among the Gentiles, as we do everything you call us to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.